0: on life. Hello and welcome to Lucas on Life. Well, love it or hate it, it's here. The World Cup has finally arrived. And of course, it's not been without all kinds of conversations. Just in case you haven't heard, which I doubt, there have been some very real concerns about the event being held in Qatar. Worries about that nation's approach to human rights and environmental concerns this week, a row broke out about David Beckham, who has enjoyed lengthy status as that lovable and impossibly handsome cheeky chappie. He's going to be an ambassador for Qatar with a rumoured £10 million payout. Comedian Joe Lysett has issued Beckham with an ultimatum about that role. He's urged the former footballer to end his association, adding that he will shred £10,000 of his own money on a live stream if Beckham doesn't back out. And then, away from all of that, obviously, there's also a lot of excitement, with the BBC even offering a computer based prediction on who will actually win the World Cup. So, with all this in mind, I'd like to offer a few sporting reflections. Now, don't worry if you're not a football or a sports fan. Don't turn off because I simply want to use my own failed experiences with golf and football to highlight some important truths. All that tonight on Lucas on Life. There were just ten seconds left in the game—a rather dreary nil-nil draw. Sensing that victory was still possible, the crowd tensed as my friend John carefully placed the football to take the corner. The crowd hushed, and I realized that I was unmarked, at least for the moment. The ball arched across the penalty area towards me, too low for a header, throwing caution to the wind. I took a volley shot. The ball cannoned into the back of the net. We had won. The team surrounded me, all hugs and backslapping, and then the deafening roar of the crowd woke me up. My victory in the beautiful game It was just a beautiful dream. My accomplishments as a schoolboy soccer player were limited, as in none. That wonderful Euro victory of England's fabulous Lionesses brought much needed moments of celebration and delight. After decades of playing away, football finally came home, and of course we're hopeful that it will come home again during the World Cup. And looking back at the Lionesses, obviously it was a team of women so often overlooked or ignored in the past. They were the ones that secured the triumph. But that epic match also stirred a niggle of pain in me as I recalled my own lackluster sporting career. I was rubbish at cricket, because when people throw hard objects at me at speed, I scream and run away. Abandoning the wicket mid-bowl is not a good tactic and I'm rubbish at golf. More about that later in the show. But just hitting the ball in any direction is an accomplishment. I don't have a swing. I have a spasm. And in one especially embarrassing school football match, I was assigned the defensive position of right back. Within minutes of the game starting, I was up at the front trying to play like a center forward. The games teacher actually halted the match to remonstrate with me with an expletive riddled tirade. Crimson faced, my teammates sniggering, I shuffled back to where I belonged. But the most excruciating time for me, in terms of sports at school, was when the teams were being picked. Two irritatingly athletic captains survey the lineup of available players, all of whom are quite desperate to be selected early in the awful process. The best performers are snapped up quickly, the ranks thin out, and then there are just four left then three, then two, and then just one was left. And that would be me. Wrinkling his nose with a look of disdain usually reserved for the last turkey in the shop, the forlorn captain shrugs his shoulders. All right, I suppose we'll take Lucas then. My status as the unwanted, least talented soul in the class was thereby confirmed. Sometimes, I feel a similar sense of shame when I'm around fellow Christian leaders, because surely they all pray more, believe more, hear the whispers of God more than me. When they talk about their excitement about being with Jesus forever, i worry about the fact that unless he returns in my lifetime, I will have to die first in order to make that meeting. And then how will it be when I finally see him face to face? When I approach him, Will his face break into a smile, his arms wide open in welcome? Great to see you, he cries. I run towards him, and suddenly his face falls. Sorry, he says, I was talking to the person behind you. Perhaps you feel the same way sometimes, but we need not fear, because our Jesus is the master of inclusion. He lunched with people like taxman Zacchaeus, a social pariah who'd been red-carded, a lackey to his Roman paymasters. And then there was loud-mouthed Peter and doubt-plagued Thomas. They were chosen too. On the Jesus team, the weak, the weary, the losers are invited by grace. We're not sent off, but sent out with a coach who doesn't just offer us winning tactics, but promises to apprentice us, shape us, empower us. With him, we win because he already has. Today, let's know this. In Christ, we are wanted. And it's all because of the cross and the resurrection. I'm not terribly good at hobbies or sports. And it's not just that when I relax, I feel guilty. I'm rather addicted to rush and activity, so I don't settle into relaxation and play terribly easily. And also, my personality demands that when I take up some new hobby or sport, I throw myself into it with wild abandon. And then I get bored, and then I abandon the new pursuit totally. So it was with scuba diving. I loved the beauty of the crystal clear waters, the fun of avoiding the gaping jaws of moray eels, the majestic gliding of giant sea turtles. I loved it so much that I considered diving as an occupation and was summing through magazines pondering ads for North Sea oil rig divers, while my wife Kay looked on with a wry smile. She knew that my obsession would last just a few days, and then I'd move on to something else. And I did. But I have never yet moved on to golf. Hoping that I might stay interested in that sport for longer than a month, Kay followed up my first visit to a golf course where I played with a group of Japanese golfers who spoke no English, which was a blessing seeing as I ruined their game with my ineptitude, Kay gave me a gift of golf lessons. Sadly, the certificate still sits on my bedside cabinet, the lessons unclaimed. And it's not just that I'm rubbish at golf. And it's not just that I think it's ultimately pointless to spend all day trying to use a stick to nudge a ball into a hole, or even more tiringly, 18 consecutive holes while avoiding sand pits. Most sports involve doing rather useless things expertly and in the shortest time possible. So that's not the reason for my golf loathing. No, the roots of my disdain are to be found in my childhood. Now, my trauma is superficial. My mother didn't run off in an electric cart with a chap who was wearing check trousers. They're driving off into the sunset limited by the 15 mile an hour capacity of the golf cart. Rather, my aversion to the sport of golf is due to a rather painful collision between me and a golf ball. While camping with my family on the side of a golf course, I must get around to asking exactly why we did that, I was walking between the tee and the green when the white cannonball struck. Now, I'm far too gentlemanly to specifically describe the area of my body that took the hit, but the arrival of our first child was greeted with great joy and relief. It was a shot below the belt, literally, ouch. And so I tend to avoid golf courses. Sometimes I've been tempted to avoid churches too, because I've taken a few more direct hits since, involved as I've been in church leadership. Christians are passionate people, blessed with opinions, and sometimes we disagree and sometimes we squabble. Disagreement is inevitable and healthy. It's proof that we're not in a cult, which is good, because I look horrid in orange. But surely we should disagree agreeably and commit to fight fairly. I've witnessed a few bare-knuckle cage fights where the saints have gone marching in with hobnail boots. The Apostle Paul had scars that proved his faithful apostleship. I'm short on scars, but like most, I've had quite a few bruises as a result of being involved in Christian leadership. Because Christians can fight dirty when we make impossible demands that can never be met, as did the lady who insisted that our church wasn't loving enough, a charge that was difficult to evaluate because there's no measuring instrument available. And even if we did get a bad reading on the non-existent loveometer, what was I to do about it? I can hardly sprinkle Lucas's secret lovey-dovey dust over the congregation while they're not looking. She seemed blissfully unaware that her own lack of love and grace was not exactly helping us in our love score. Another kidney punch is the accusation that the teaching isn't deep enough. What exactly is deep preaching? Does deep mean that Tom Wright has been often quoted throughout the sermon, that a grainy image of an ancient Mesopotamian tablet has been flashed up on PowerPoint, and that the sermon has been sprinkled with a few Greek words other than kebab? Some Christians seem to think that deep teaching happens when they don't understand what on earth the speaker is talking about, as if their confusion is a sign that they are truly connecting with the transcendental. On the other hand, if a complicated idea is presented clearly, they are tempted to believe that the content is lightweight and the speaker is too. Thus, the better teacher you are, the more likely you are to be accused of not being deep because you're gifted to make the complex accessible there's no way to win when that kind of attitude prevails. But the knockout punch is thrown when we have a disagreement in church, and then we insist that God is the one who agrees with us. He's on my side, we say. He's in our corner. When we thoughtlessly lob phrases around like, God has told me, God is with me, God agrees with me, or bizarrely, God likes the music that I like, We throw firebombs that usually turn a small spat into a major war. Before, we were having a rational discussion, but now, in disagreeing with our opinion, others are forced to imply that they don't think we've heard from God, and that we may well be self-deceived. Dissenters become enemies, and calm conversation is rendered impossible. Sadly, too, often leaders are the ones who resort to this kind of warfare— Feeling insecure, some leaders are too lazy to allow healthy discussion when members of their congregation ask even the most reasonable questions. Suddenly, the inquiry is tagged as being difficult, awkward, or worse still, divisive, a threat to the unity of the church, a witch burning is in the offing. This is actually cowardly behavior and so unnecessary. It would be so much easier to treat the question and the questioner with respect and perhaps even make an attempt at an answer. So if we have to fight, let's fight nicely. And with that in mind, I'd like to suggest a new practice when the church starts to feel like a golf driving range. Sometimes we say amen when we agree. So why not yell four when someone drives an unfair and dangerous verbal shot? That way everyone would know that it's time to duck or quickly climb into a pair of armor-plated pants. So tonight, as I've been sharing some of my sporting gaffes, let's celebrate the truth that when it comes to picking his team, Jesus includes all of us. We're all broken people under construction. And then let's also remember that when we disagree, and we will, let's disagree agreeably so that kindness is not sacrificed. When conflict arrives. Thanks so much for joining me. See you next week. Lucas on Life.